You know, uh, there's a temptation for us to uh, take a time like this and say, what a great God we have for blessing us so much. And unintentionally, our focus can be on the blessings that we've received and just stay there. And so, like I mentioned last week, I wanted us to take a minute to see how we can be a blessing to others or to be reminded of the way that we have been a blessing to others. So if you recall, in 2017, we planted a church in Honduras in a a town called La Paz through Compassion International. And just this past week, I received uh, an online article from um, Honduras, from Compassion. And let me read, uh, read a portion of that article. In the Lahangra community where the 297 Compassion church plant was launched in 2017, Uh, which used to be a forsaken and hopeless place with more than 300 families living with less than $2 a day and with no access to potable water, health care, or child development. It was heartbreaking to see the level of malnourishment and the neglect the children were facing when they were registered, recalled Sigrid, the project director. When the church building and the classrooms were inaugurated, beneficiaries and their families started to experience holistic growth. It's been two years since the Compassion Center started and children are defeating integral poverty. A church in the U.S. heard about the church's efforts to bring help to an area in great need. So in 2017, and the article um, talks about Living Hope. Living Hope Community Church decided to fund the church planning initiative and build a 297 center in partnership with Compassion. Since the launch of the center, representatives from the Los Angeles church have returned every year to serve the La Granja community with medical brigades offering dental care, eye care, and glasses, which the community could not previously afford, and also VBS. And they introduced one of the the girls in that uh, community. Sarah, eight, is an enthusiastic beneficiary of the Compassion Center. When Sarah started attending the Compassion Center two years ago, she had low weight. Through the project's work, not only did her physical health improve, her spiritual life was also boosted, and she now loves to recite Bible verses like her favorite, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through uh, him who strengthens me. Sarah's grandmother, Uh, says, when Sarah gets back from the Compassion Center, she shares with me the Bible verses she memorized and sings to me the worship songs she learned that day. I'm positive uh, that Sarah will have a different future that does not involve poverty at all. During the medical brigades carried out by Compassion sponsors from the church in Los Angeles, Modesta benefited from medical checkups, medicine, and new glasses for her nearsightedness, a problem she has not Uh, treated before because she lacked the means. This is the grandmother. When Sarah was sponsored by Elizabeth, and and, um, Elizabeth, that's Mike and Liz Chong. I I don't know if they're at this service. Uh, When Elizabeth's family from the United States, Sarah started receiving letters and words of encouragement that have lifted up her up to dream of a better future. Sarah feels loved by Elizabeth and her kids. Every time Sarah gets a new letter and photo, she saves them in a special container. Because of her registration with Compassion, Sarah has benefited from a new Bible for children uh, her age, field trips to the 
children's museum, school supplies, medical checkups twice a year, children's day celebration, and more. For, for her birthday celebration, Sarah has been surprised with a monetary gift from her sponsor, Elizabeth. With my birthday gifts, I bought shoes to go to school, trousers, t-shirts, and hairbands. We also got a family gift, and my grandma bought groceries, recalled Sarah. I felt very happy and blessed with those gifts, and I'm grateful that Elizabeth is my sponsor. I pray for her and her children every day. Can I ask um, all of you here, how many of you um, sponsor, you or your family member, sponsors a uh, compassion child? Could you raise your hand? How many of you, uh, can you take a look around? Take a look around. Hey, give, thank you so much. And every time we send a VBS team or a medical team, uh, we're ministering to our kids, and I'm so grateful that you're not uh, only grateful for the good work that God is doing in you and in this community, but the way that God is doing a good work through this community. You know, there are three ways that I want uh, you to perhaps express that. First of all, our church plant is designed to build up a second floor to house all the kids that are coming, about 264, and we are in need of 13,000 more dollars. And I know there are people in here who can just write a $13,000 check, uh, but I want you to listen to me. Uh, I don't want you to do that, okay? Um, I want Living Hope collectively uh, to give toward this. And so if you are a member of Living Hope Community Church, pick a number from 10 to 1,000, 10 to 1,000, um, in addition to your tithing that you're giving today, uh, 10 to 1,000. So if you're a college student, uh, that's two cups of coffee, so it's stereoscope, okay? Um, uh, fast, two cups of coffee, 10 to 1,000, so that as members we can collectively say that we've built out the second floor, right? So that when, when we send the VBS team medical brigade or when you see videos or when you think about your sponsored child being ministered, you can say we collectively built this out. And so by the end of tonight, whether physically uh, during the offering or online, um, do that, all right? And secondly, uh, for those of you who didn't raise your hand, uh, there are nine more children. They just took them in, babies, that should be, um, that need to be sponsored. And their pictures and, and profiles are out there. So I'd love to see all nine babies just taken after this service, right? So the third service, people coming, hey, I was thinking of, you know, wanting to sponsor. Well, too late, all right? The second service, people got them all. So uh, if you do not, if you're not sponsoring a child, I, I strongly encourage you to do so. Uh, it's not only for the child's sake, but it's for your, your sake, okay? And thirdly, we're blessed because we have a virtual reality experience, and you put the VR, like, cool glasses on, and you, um, you can uh, get into the world of a child, uh, a girl who lives in Brazil, actually, who's kind of like Sarah. And uh, we start down here by the main hall, and, there, and you go upstairs, you get a little booklet, and, and you get instructions, and you put this on, and you, you uh, see her world. It's about a five-minute tour, and so that will begin after this service. I strongly encourage you to do that, all right? Um, hey, uh, I'm so excited uh, to introduce to you our guest speaker for today, Jeremy Tree. He's like a rock star in the evangelical world. 
And um, he is the, the teaching, the preaching vision pastor of a church called Reality LA. And that's, you know, like in high school, there's like the cool kid. That's like the cool kid of, of the evangelical church in LA. Uh, they are not only hipster. I visited there one time. I felt like a nerd just being there. Um, and not only are they cool, but they teach the Bible and also they pray. I thought, you know, maybe we, would, no, they pray. And uh, Jeremy Treed is the, the, the teaching pastor there. He's also on the council of, of TGC. He's written a bunch, couple of books, uh, his latest book. Uh, I thought it was so good on the kingdom that I gave it out to all the staff members. Um, when Jeremy was speaking for Sola, I got to know him, got, went to, over to his home, had a meal, etc. and you know, I just like, you know, like, the cool kid, can, can I ask him out on the, you know, like, hey, would you mind, you know, speaking, you know, uh, but surprisingly, uh, he said yes, uh, uh, he gets invited to speak at big conferences, but he wanted to maintain a, uh, friendships with local churches, so I'm so grateful for that, um, yeah, would you, I, I was going to say something other, uh, funny, but uh, I'll, I'll Can I say it? Like, you know, like I was, <laughs> Jeremy was speaking at the first service. I was just like thinking, you know, what is it that I do better than him? And he's wearing skinny jeans and these cool, I don't know what those kind of shoes are. I don't even, I don't even know where to buy them. Sure, he's more athletic and, you know, normally I think I'm pretty smart, but he's written a couple of books. He's smarter than me. Um... And my staff told me, well, you know, like, you know, so I was, was kind of like lamenting the fact that, well, Pastor Steve, at least you speak Korean, so maybe. <laughs> but Roman said, Jeremy probably speaks Korean too, so. <laughs> Jeremy, would you come and humble me some more? All right. Well, it's such an honor to be with you today. Like Pastor Steve said, uh, I'm in Los Angeles, but I actually grew up in Alaska and lived a lot of my life in Seattle. But today I am incredibly honored to be here with you as a church. And what a special day to celebrate with you. Uh, on your 26th anniversary. I want to commend you for that. I feel like the Apostle Paul, I want to say, I've heard of your faithfulness from afar. Uh, the Lord has done and is doing a beautiful work in and through you. I also want to say thank you and take a minute to honor Pastor Steve. It's been such a joy getting to know him and I've seen his love for the Lord and his love for you all as a church. And honestly, he's just been a model of longevity and faith faithfulness to me. And that's not always common to have that longevity and faithfulness, um, especially in the Los Angeles area. So thank you. I honor you. I hope that you all know how blessed you are to be under his leadership. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them up to Matthew chapter 16. As I went to the Lord and asked him what he would have for you all today, he really impressed this passage on my heart, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. So I'll read that for us, and then I'll open our time in the word in prayer. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13 and going through verse 18. 
Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is God's word. Let's pray together. God, we come before you today asking that you would give us ears to hear your voice through the scriptures. Would you open our eyes to see the beauty and the power of the gospel? And would you soften our hearts to receive of your love? Holy Spirit, we pray that you would shine a spotlight on Jesus. Help us to see him for who he is and to know what he's done for us through the gospel. We pray that that would not only change us in our inner being, that you would transform our hearts, but that would lead to transforming every aspect of our lives. And we pray that all of this, Lord, would ultimately be for your glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, everybody seems to be down on the church today. A lot of non-Christians look at the church and dismiss the church merely as narrow-minded, bigoted, irrelevant. Some people say they're too political. Others say they're not political enough, but they just dismiss the church or maybe even persecute the church. But it's not just non-Christians who make these claims. There are also followers of Jesus who say they don't need the church. They're over the church. They say things like, I don't need the church to connect with God. I can go in nature for that. But there are others who are less defiant in their approach, but still drift from the church. Maybe they're just too busy. There's a lot going on in life and church feels like one more thing to keep up with. Others are disillusioned with the church. They came into the church with certain expectations. Those weren't met. They were let down. They were disappointed. And so they've backed off. And then there are others who have wounds from the church where they've kept the church at a distance. And so the church clearly has its issues. I'm not going to respond to all that in defending the church and saying that the church is perfect. No, hypocrisy is rampant. Authority has been abused. Political agendas have crept in. And so it makes sense that many have given up on the church. But here's what I want you to hear today. Jesus has not given up on the church. Jesus is not down on the church. Jesus is not over the church. Jesus loves the church. And while everybody seems to have an opinion about the church, I want to draw our attention today to the one whose opinion matters most, and that is Christ, the Lord of the church. And so we're going to look at Matthew 16, and we're going to see the identity of Jesus, but then we'll also see the significance of the church in his mission. So let me just summarize for you the beginning of this story in Matthew 16 in the first couple of verses. Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples and he has asked them the question, who do people say that I am? 
Now, at this point in the story of Jesus, he's been doing miracles, he's been teaching, he's been casting out demons, and so everyone's hearing about this. There's a stirring amongst the crowds, and everyone's got an opinion as to who is this Jesus. And so the disciples tell him, well, some people think that you're like an Old Testament prophet. Others think that you're like John the Baptist. And they're having this conversation back and forth where people are giving different opinions. And then Jesus stops them. He looks them in the eye and he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And this is a question that rings throughout all of human history and was not meant just for the disciples of Jesus, but for us today. And I would say to you that this is the most important question you will ever answer in your life. And it doesn't come from me as a preacher. It comes from Jesus himself. Who do you say that I am? Peter replies to Jesus in verse 16. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, this revelation of the identity of Jesus comes at a pivotal moment in the story. And Peter is right. And in his answer, there's so much in that short sentence, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We can unpack that to see that this tells us who Jesus is and what he came to do. And even Jesus' response makes clear that this isn't a matter of human opinion. This is from the revelation of God himself. And so who is Jesus? Well, as Peter says, he's the son of the living God. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a good man who pointed to God. He is the eternal son of God himself. And what did he come to do? Well, the key is that Peter calls Jesus the Christ. I like to remind people that Christ was not Jesus's last name. Nobody called him Mr. Christ. It didn't say Christ on the back of his football jersey. No, Christ is a title. It means Messiah or anointed one. The Messiah was the promised one of the Old Testament who would come to set right what all of our sins have made wrong. The Messiah was the one who would be sent by God to rescue us from our sin and to fulfill every promise of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus came to heal the hurting, to forgive the sinner, to bind up the broken, to set the captives free, to conquer evil, to reveal the truth, and to save the lost. And he did this. He accomplished this through his life, death, and resurrection. The life of Jesus is so important. Sometimes people skip over that and go straight to the cross. But Jesus is the imperfect He was the the perfect embodiment of grace and truth, of love and mercy, of holiness and wisdom. And Jesus lived a perfect life, keeping the covenant, always glorifying God, always loving neighbor. And then he took that perfect life and he offered it up as a sacrifice by dying on the cross. He didn't have to do that. He did it willingly and voluntarily. Why? Out of love for us. And so on the cross, Christ died in our place for our sins so that we might be reconciled to God and made new. But Jesus didn't stay on the cross. See, the tomb is empty and Christ walked out of the tomb having conquered sin, Satan, and death. And this is the good news of God's grace in Christ. 
It tells us who God is and what he's done for us. And this is a a different picture than many people think of God. Honestly, most people and, and some of you think of God as a distant deity with arms folded, looking down in disappointment, waiting for us to get our act together so that we could work to him and gain his approval. But that's not what we see through the scriptures We're not talking about the God who is out to get me. We're talking about the God who is for me and pursues me and sent his son to save me. We're talking about the God who entered into his creation, taking on the brokenness, entering into the messiness that he might bring healing and hope in our lives today. And so in Christ... Your relationship with God does not depend on your performance, but on his grace. And isn't that a beautiful truth? Because so often we think that our relationship with God depends on our performance. And so I, I have a good day, I do something, something good for God, and, and then I start to well up with pride. And then I have a bad day and I struggle with sin, and I'm defeated by sin, I'm down here and I'm wallowing in guilt and shame. And so our lives go up and down like a roller coaster. But our relationship with God doesn't depend on our, perform- on our performance. It depends, it depends on his grace. And he is constant. His grace is abounding. He is unchanging in his love for us. Now, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. And you see it declared and revealed in this passage when Peter says, You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. But what I want you to notice now is immediately after revealing his identity and mission, Jesus goes on to talk about the importance of the church. And so he goes on in verse 18 and he says to Peter in response, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I want to build on this gospel foundation in learning and and talking about three truths about Jesus and the church. And the first is this. Jesus is inseparable from the church. Jesus is inseparable from the church. In fact, this is the first time in the New Testament that the word church is used. And it comes out of the mouth of Jesus on his way to the cross. And just think about the images that are used in the New Testament to talk about the church and how they teach us about this inextricable relationship between Christ and the church. So the church is called the bride of Christ. So listen, my wife and I have been married for 14 years. I love her deeply. And if you came up to me and said, hey, Pastor Jeremy, I really like you. Could we get together sometime for coffee? But make sure that your wife doesn't come. She is obnoxious. How's that gonna go? It's not gonna go well, right? Like I am gonna be offended. Why? Because I love my wife. I will defend my wife and protect my wife. But a lot of people have this attitude to Jesus. Well, I love Jesus, but not the church. It's like saying that to Jesus, well, I I like you, but not your bride. Jesus will have none of that. Think about the image in the New Testament of the church as the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. We are the body. And what happens if the body is separated from the head? 
Well, hopefully you don't know from experience, but it's not good. It's lifeless. There's no vibrancy. That's what happens if you attempt to separate Christ from the church. And so we can see through the scriptures, it's very clear that Jesus and the church go together. You see this in, as the narrative unfolds in the early church in the book of Acts. Uh, Saul, who would eventually become known as Paul, is persecuting the church. And if you read in Acts 9, it makes very clear that Saul is persecuting the church. Okay, remember that. He's persecuting the church. But then Jesus comes and he confronts Saul. And here's what he says to him. Why are you persecuting me? Now, Saul could have responded to him and said, what are you talking about, Jesus? This has nothing to do with you. I'm persecuting the church. I got no beef with you. I'm persecuting them. But notice what Jesus says. You're persecuting me. If you persecute the church, you're persecuting Christ because the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. And this way of thinking of Jesus and the church is very different than the norm I think the norm, at least in popular American Christianity, is that, that uh, you have this experience with Christ, you're saved in, by trusting in Christ, and then the church is this later spiritual add-on that exists to help me in my own personal holiness. But that couldn't be further from the truth. The church is intrinsic to salvation, to be saved by Christ is to be adopted into a family, to be rescued into a kingdom, to be grafted onto a tree. Jesus is inseparable from the church. Secondly, secondly, we learn from this passage that Jesus is building his church. So while there's a lot we could get into in the details of these verses, I want to zoom in on five world-changing words that came out of the mouth of Jesus. He said, I will build my church. So it's clear here that the church belongs to Jesus. He is the head of the body. He is the king of the kingdom. He is the shepherd of the sheep. And so I can say that Reality LA is not my church it's Jesus' church. I know that Pastor Steve would say that living hope is not his church. It's Jesus' church. He is the chief shepherd. He rules over the church. So the church belongs to Jesus. But we also learn from these words that the church is built by Jesus. He doesn't say, I'll start, I'll lay the foundation, and then it's up to you. Make sure you don't mess it up. No, he says, I will be the one who is building the church. And we need to hear this today because we live in a culture that's all about deconstruction, right? Everyone in our society is an expert at picking things apart and deconstructing and tearing down and exposing the injustice and hypocrisy of everything. But in a culture of deconstruction, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now notice that he doesn't say that the gates of hell won't try. So we're in a battle. And the easiest way to lose a battle is to not realize that you're in it. And so Jesus is building his church, but there will be opposition. There will be struggle. So when you experience that, don't automatically assume that you're doing something wrong or that God is being negligent. Christ is accomplishing his purposes. He is advancing the kingdom. He is building his church. 
So the church belongs to Jesus. The church is built by Jesus. We also see from these words that the church is the beautiful instrument of Jesus. Notice what Jesus didn't say here. He didn't say, I will build my military. He didn't say, I will build my business or I will build my nonprofit or my think tank or my university. No, he said, I will build my church. And he is. In fact, while scripture is the ultimate revelation of truth, history can show us that Jesus is keeping this promise in incredible ways. When Jesus made this claim, he had called 12 disciples to himself and there was a small crowd gathering that was interested in his message. But let me just show you quickly through history how Jesus truly is building his church. So he started with 12 here. By the year 30 AD, you've already got around 1,000 Christians. And then by the end of the first century, by around 100 AD, after the New Testament, New Testament had been written, that number had grown tenfold to there being 10,000 Christians. And they're spread out in these major, major urban cities like Rome and Ephesus and Corinth and Galatia. Then just within 100 years, by 200 AD, the church had grown 20-fold and you have 200,000 Christians. And I'm not making these numbers up. They come from Larry Hurtado, who's a biblical scholar from the University of Edinburgh. And so by the year 200, you've got over 200,000 Christians. But then by the year 300 AD, you have over 5 million Christians. And this is unthinkable. It puzzles historians and sociologists how this small ragtag group of fishermen and tax collectors and carpenters could, could grow to a movement of five million, especially in the Roman Empire where they were being persecuted. The Roman Empire was literally trying to stamp out Christianity, throwing Christians into arenas with bears and tigers, killing them as fast as they could. And even though they were killing Christians as fast as they could, the church was growing exponentially to the point where there was over 5 million Christians by 300 AD. And if you think that's explosive growth, then let's just fast forward to, to, to today, 2019 AD. And today, there are over 2.5 billion Christians, 2.5 billion people throughout this world claiming the name of Jesus. He said, I will build my church, and history shows that he's keeping his promise. But that's true not only over centuries. Jesus is building his church all over the world today. So if you ever hear someone say, well, the church is in decline, well, you might think, sure, in certain Western parts of the world, the church is. But globally, the church is flourishing and growing like it never has before. Did you know that today there are over 600 million followers of Jesus in Latin America? There are almost twice as many Christians in Africa as there are people in the United States. And I could go on and on and on with stats from different countries, but listen to this. The name of Jesus is being praised in over 4,765 4, languages throughout the world today. This is incredible. And, and, and every one of those is a miracle of God's grace, a gift of salvation. I mean, this week, people, there's been this buzz and this excitement. Everyone's talking about Kanye, 
and Kanye converted and his new album came out. And listen, praise God. If, if he is truly saved, praise God and, and pray for him that he would be faithful and be a light in the midst of darkness. But it's very American of us to rejoice and focus over someone who's famous, who's a celebrity that claims the name of Christ. But listen, I mean, this week, there were people in the, in the, in the bottom of the caste system in India who got saved. Uh, this week, there are villages in Africa that missionaries made it out to who have never heard the gospel before, who are now hearing the good news of Jesus Christ and being transformed. There are people in Latin America who are suffering under oppression and they're hearing the good news of Jesus Christ and experiencing hope and true, true peace even in the midst of pain. And so we praise God for that, that he is building his church. He's building his church all over the world and he's doing that right here in Brea and he's doing that in and through you all as a community. And I want to encourage you with this. On your 26th anniversary, this is incredible. I hope that you don't take this for granted, that God in his sovereign plan has planted you and given you vibrancy and growth right here. Living hope, you are a light in the darkness. You are a city on a hill. You are a pillar of truth. And, and that is a work of God's grace that he has done this, but he's drawn you into this. And I want to encourage you and remind you of how much of a gift that is. So we've seen that Jesus is inseparable from the church. Jesus is building the church. And then third, Jesus calls you to commit to the church. This is where it gets really practical. And I want to call you today to commit to the local church as an expression of your commitment to Christ. Think about it like this. Everyone wants to be a part of something great, right? Everyone wants to be a part of a movement that's bigger than themselves, that has purpose and meaning and leaves a lasting impact in this world. Well, I would, I would say that there's no greater movement than the church of Jesus, I mean, literally, think about it historically. Kingdoms rise and fall. Movements come and go. And the church of Jesus remains and is flourishing all over the world today. And so I would truly say that I think that the local church is the hope of the world. And that sounds audacious because, yeah, the church is broken and messy and difficult. And ultimately, Jesus himself is the hope of the world. But Jesus is at work in and through the church. And so I want to call you to commit to the church. But we've also got to acknowledge then that in our day and age, there are many barriers to commitment. We live in a very non-committal culture. And so first, uh, there's, there's a cultural barrier to commitment. Uh, because we live in a, a society that, that really prizes moving on to the next big thing. 
And you just see this kind of the way that our culture works, that whatever's new and flashy, people gravitate, gravitate towards and rally around and get excited about. And then gradually the initial excitement kind of fizzles away and something else new pops up and we run to that and we're excited about that and we rally around it and, and it's good and we have these great feelings, but then eventually uh, we see something else and then we go to that. And this culture oftentimes has crept into the church where maybe someone commits to a church and wow, this place is great. Preaching is awesome. The worship is amazing. All these people are so nice. And then after a little while, like they have a little conflict with someone. Uh, The preacher says something that they don't really like. They don't really like that one song or the way that it's sung, right? Like eventually it kind of loses its luster and then you hear about this other church and through their flashy Instagram account and you hear about the things that are happening there and, and we move on to the next big thing. But this is not the kind of commitment that we see in the scriptures. We're, we're called not to moving on to the next big thing. We're called to a covenantal type of commitment, Covenantal, like a marriage, like binding yourself to another unconditionally, committing to sticking it out through the hard times, committing to to one another as an expression of your commitment to Christ. So there's a cultural barrier to commitment, but there's also a personal barrier. And here's how this plays out for us today. I would say that uh, the way that a lot of people, maybe in the most common approach to Christianity and specifically to the church, it goes something like this. It's the idea of me, me-centered spirituality based on personal preference. So yeah, I, like I follow Jesus and I believe in the church. But what that means practically is that, that I kind of piecemeal uh, different resources from the church that is this dispenser of spiritual goods. And so why does that need to be one church? I'm going to listen to my favorite preacher on this podcast. I can listen to this worship album in my headphones. I can even sit in my room alone at home and go to church online on my laptop or on my phone. But when we look at the scriptures, we don't see me-centered spirituality. We see the call to the Christ-centered church. To to commit to Christ and to commit to actual people over time. To be in the physical presence of brothers and sisters together. There's one other barrier that I want to talk about, though. And this one, I would say, is an emotional barrier. Uh, Many people struggle with commitment to the church because they have wounds from the church. And as a pastor, I've, I've seen this so much over time that I would say that many, if not most Christians, have some kind of wounds either uh, from the church or in the church. And so I know that that's many of you here today. Uh, maybe that's from a, a church in your past. Maybe you had a bad experience with another Christian or a leader in the church. And and wounds from the church or in the church are some of the most difficult to deal with because the church is supposed to be a, a place that is safe and a place of healing. And so what do you do when a space that's supposed to be safe and healing becomes a place where you're inflicted and you can't be honest? Wounds from the church are also difficult because the church is meant to represent God. 
And so what happens when we receive wounds from others within the church is that we often project that bitterness or disappointment on God himself. And that leads to some just drifting from the church and their wounds come out in anger. But that also can lead to people staying in the church, but because they've been hurt, their hearts become callous. They build up walls around them. And so for some of you, maybe you, you go through the motions, you gather with the church on Sundays, you do the things that you're supposed to do, but you keep a distance from people. You have a distrust for leadership. And so if that's you, first of all, I would just want to acknowledge that, to be able to acknowledge the wounds. But I want to call you then not to, uh, to wallow in those wounds or to fester those wounds but to begin to experience healing from those wounds by taking that first to the Lord, but also to one another of being able to communicate that and ask for prayer, maybe even talking with one of your pastors about what that process of healing could look like. This is, this is what we have to acknowledge and work through to experience the real kind of commitment that scripture calls us to. And as I call you to commitment, uh, I want to acknowledge that many of you have done and are doing this. As a church that's, that's been here for 26 years, I know that there are many of you who have been here that whole time. And there's been generational faithfulness in your families. And I want to encourage you for that. I want to commend you for that and just acknowledge the commitment that there's been in this church. But then some of you are newer, and you've been around for a little while, and when you come to a new church, you kind of have a, a, a posture of, of checking things out and I'll kind of see. But at some point, there has to be a place where you say that I'm accountable to this church. I'm choosing to invest my energy and my passion and my, my relational capacity, my money in, in this church that I'm committing here. So I want to commend you, and I want to call you to commitment a lot of people today, especially young people, want to do something radical, want to do something different. There's nothing more radical than following Jesus and committing to the local church. And I want to call you to that today. I think of a woman in our church who, uh, just within a year or so ago, she, she didn't know Jesus. Uh, she was living a life far from him. And she found herself hurting and desperate. She had just had a child. The, the father was out of the picture, I think, before the baby was even born. And she ends up at our church. She immediately connects with some other moms who also have infants. And she started to experience the grace of God through community. And then she hears the good news of salvation in Christ. She trusts in Christ. But even as she's becoming a Christian and growing as a Christian, that's all happening as she's being surrounded by people who have become family to her. I think of when she got baptized. And one of the most beautiful pictures was of her being in the waters, going down and raising up, representing that she's been washed of her sin. She has new life, new resurrection life in Christ. But while she's getting baptized, her community group, these friends who have become like family to her are surrounding the baptismal and they're the ones holding the baby while she's getting baptized and hugging her and praying for her afterwards. 
See, God reconciles us to himself, but he also reconciles us into his family. And we all have a role in that. Everyone's role matters. In fact, this, the Greek word that's used for church in Matthew 16 is ekklesia. And that word literally means assembly. So think about it like this. Imagine that you have a bicycle and it's completely disassembled. Okay, it's a pile of parts. You've got the gears and the pedals and the handlebars and the spokes and it's just in this pile. Now, a disassembled bicycle is useless. While the parts are valuable in and of themselves, it can't fulfill its purpose if it's disassembled. But if you assemble that bike where all of the parts are are fulfilling their role, then the bike can do what it was meant to do. Then it can fulfill its purpose. So it is with the church. If the church is merely disassembled, if we're all as individuals trying to do our own thing, even if it's for the Lord then we will not be able to live as we were meant to live. We will not be able to fulfill the purpose that God has given us. But when we are assembled, when we are working together as the body of Christ, as the family of God, then we'll be able to fulfill our purpose of witnessing to Christ, of making disciples of Jesus of being a pillar of truth, of being a light to the nations, of being a city on a hill. And some of you in hearing that, I know that you hear that and you think, yeah, I believe that in general, but I don't know if that's true for me as an individual. And I know that even as I preach this, that the enemy wants to come and bring lies that some of you are gonna be tempted to believe. And you're gonna think, yeah, I believe that in general, but for me it's different. I don't belong. I want to speak truth to the lies and say that you belong. You are a son or a daughter of the king and you have been adopted into a family. You belong here. Some of you hear this and you think, yeah, but my role doesn't matter. My spiritual gifts don't mean much to the church. And maybe you think that because you compare to other people or I'm not up front or what I'm doing isn't very visible but you need to understand that everyone's role matters and that we all have to be in this together for the glory of Christ. Some of you hear this and you say, yeah, that that sounds great, but I'm not good enough or you don't know what I've done. And what I wanna say to you is that God's grace goes further than your sin. None of us are good enough, but we're redeemed and we've been called together to be the church to be broken people who are being made new by Jesus and calling others into that. So I want to call you to commitment today, but I want you to understand this, that your commitment will only come when you understand Christ's commitment to you. And he is so committed to you that he went to the cross, that he conquered death and that he rose from the grave and that he's alive and he's pursuing you today. So I really want you to hear this today as a message of grace. This is not a a message that I'm trying to guilt you or shame you of you're not doing enough in the church and you just need to do more. No, this truly is a message of grace that not only are we reconciled to God, but we've been given family. We've been been 
given one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, that you don't have to do this alone, and you are not alone. This is a message of grace. But the way that we receive grace is through faith. And, and I like to think of faith as a posture of surrender. It's having open hands before the Lord, willing to receive of his grace. See, God is pouring out his blessings upon us. But there's a problem. The natural posture of our fallen hearts is to squeeze tight on control of our own lives. Would you do something for me? Would you, would you take your hands and put them in a fist and just hold them in front of you? Squeeze tight. That's the natural or the fallen uh, posture of your heart, to want to take control, to do your way over God's way, to hold on to certain things in your life that you're trusting in place of Christ. And so God is pouring down his blessings upon us, and we want those, but we can't catch them because we're holding on to control of our own lives. And what I want you to do now is a, as a physical representation of the posture of your heart in trusting in God is to open your hands. This is the posture of faith, of receiving from the Lord. It's vulnerable. It's a posture of surrender that says, I want, I want what you want for me. But notice this. If you let go, what happens to your hands? They automatically start to close up. So a posture of faith is one that we have to maintain over time. So faith is not merely trusting in Christ for salvation at the beginning. It is certainly that. But it's also posturing, him, posturing ourselves before him with receptive hearts, with a life of surrender, saying, I want your way, not my way. And so if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, then open your hands to him to receive of his grace and his mercy in your life. Repent of your sin. Turn to Christ. But know that then your commitment to Christ is also plays out in a commitment to the church. And if you're here today, as I know many of you are, and you've been followers of Jesus for a long time, I want to call you to, to trust in Christ, to receive of his mercy and his grace today, that identity that was declared over you earlier, that you say, that's who I am but to recommit and to constantly commit your life to Christ and to his church. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the abundance of your mercy and grace that you have given us in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have hearts that are open to receive of your love, that we might be transformed from the inside out. So Lord, I pray even now, that you would be at work changing us from the inside out, that we might trust you, that we might be willing to give everything in our lives over to you, knowing that whatever we place in your hands is placed in hands that are trustworthy and loving and kind. And so we look to you, Lord. We believe your promises. We believe that you are building your church. And God, I pray a blessing upon this church. Lord, would you use them mightily in this community? Would you make them salt and light in this city? God, we pray for more years and decades of faithfulness and longevity and witnessing to Christ, who is the chief shepherd of the church. We pray this in his name. Amen.